All right. So we, oh, before I even get started, welcome to 2016. Um, a little underwhelming, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we are still journeying through the book of Isaiah, which you know, I don't know about you guys, but I think it's been really, really good stuff. Um, just being able to refresh my memory and think through a lot of stuff that maybe I've glossed over when I was reading it in, in times past. It's been refreshing just to revisit and, and to be honest, just experiencing a lot of personal revival in doing that and really kind of submerging in the text and what we're learning about God in the process. So we were blessed to hear from, from Joe Lou last week, and he gave us the indication that Israel is in some dire times, and I think we're going to kind of see that theme consistently through Isaiah and what he has to share with the people. Um, but I think that what was really helpful was just kind of giving us a picture of the result of pride. And when you are prideful and um, you allow that to take over your perspective on life and, and how you view God and your need for him, um, it can really put you in a tough spot. And really where they are is they're bearing the weight of judgment because they are rebellious and prideful. And they decided to trust in man rather than God. They've decided to align with Assyria, this Assyrian empire because of their military strength, instead of trust this God who has done so many great things for them throughout their history on earth. So today, we get to open up 2016 and talk about grace, which I'm so thankful for. Um, really get unraveled by it a lot of times because I know I'm not worthy of grace. I know I'm not fit to stand before God, but he has had mercy and he has lavished us all with his great love. So it's a great thing that we get to talk about grace today. Now, in order for us to consider grace in all of its glory, we have to take the state of Israel at face value. If we're going to use this text and we're going to illuminate this concept of grace and we're really going to walk through what that means for us, we have to, to see Israel where they are. And we can't make them a people to be pitied and not acknowledge the fact that they have totally rejected God. As a whole, they have walked away from God. They have decided that they do not need him. They have decided that his laws mean nothing to them. They have decided to trust in man-made idols and or man-made power. Um, and honestly, we can't distance ourselves from that tendency, our tendency to trust in things that we can see, to trust in things that we feel like we can handle, and um, in the process, leave the very God who gave us the very breath in our lungs. Now, here's the thing about grace. It doesn't work if for one second you think you deserve it. It doesn't work. Entitlement and grace is an oxymoronic pairing of words. You're not entitled to grace. It's unmerited, unearned favor that you get. By definition, you're gaining something that you should not have any hope of receiving. And this is what makes it amazing. This is what makes us very thankful and joyful when we sing 
songs that talk about God's grace, when we read passages in scriptures that talk about how we have been given this access to a God who naturally should be very far from us, but we are beckoned to come near to him. We're beckoned to draw near. We're invited to the throne of grace, and we've experienced this level and understand what it means to, to actually take a bold step towards the throne of grace because we realize that we're not worthy. But Christ has won this for us. Christ has beckoned us. Christ has made that way. He's given us that passageway to a high and holy place. Now, I don't know how many um, fellow Hunger Games supporters we have in here, but well, there's, there's a affirming chuckle out there. So it's a few people. Now, I'm not like all the way like down the Hunger Games. I don't have like, you know, the Mockingjay tattooed on my back or anything like that. You know, it's, it doesn't go that deep for me. I didn't read the book, so I don't even know. Some people, purists, could say that I'm really not for the Hunger Games, but whatever. I saw the movies. I saw all three, sat through all eight hours of them, so give me some credit. Um, and I, they were really enjoyable, but there's, there's a particular character that, you know, he's the villain, and he just... He, he was somebody who I wanted to die. Like, you know, I, from, from when I saw him, look, I'm confessing this to you. Can, you know, so you felt this way too. President Snow. President Snow was this evil, you know, ruler who, he was just evil. The, the, the way that he concocted these schemes and the way that he would execute massive amounts of people and, and still remain in control, the concept of the Hunger Games itself was just like, what? This is cruel. So President Snow was seemingly this unapologetic evil dictator type of guy who ironically wore white all the time. And it was just like, I want him brought to justice, violent, bloodthirsty justice. Somebody take him out. Watch the trilogy, get to the end. And um, I don't, you know, no spoilers here, but he does eventually die. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yes, he dies. And, you know, unfortunately, he died. And, and I had kind of like, I was a little unsatisfied, you know, like with the way he died. And I felt like there was just, it should have been more. I should have felt more satisfied with the fact that this guy who was literally orchestrating all types of evil was, was wiped off the face of the earth, but I, I just wasn't. I wasn't satisfied. It felt like either there was, there was a lot to be left on the table or I just wanted it to be more gruesome or whatever it was. And actually, what was weird about it is I ended up feeling sorry for him a little bit because it was just kind of like, I'm not going to say anymore, but I just felt sorry for him a little bit. And I began to think about it a little bit more, and the more I think about it, in light of Scripture, in light of grace itself, you know, I am President Snow. I am the one who should be at the mercy of justice. I am the one who has concocted evil schemes and strategies throughout my life. It sounds harsh and sounds really just heavily weighed on the extreme side of the fence, but... When we think about the perfection and the holiness of God, 
and we weigh that against who we are and what we have done. Man, thank God for grace. You know, thank God for mercy and thank God for a God who loves us in spite of all that. So what's happening here is we see Israel in total depravity, but God's promise of preservation despite the imperial dominance of Assyria is what we can hope in, is what we can, we can take something from and apply it to where we are now. So we go into this pretty much the subtext of a remnant will return. And what's being articulated here, what the prophet Isaiah is prophesying, uh, what the Lord is saying to us is that the people of Israel will no longer depend on Assyria. Start off here in verse 20. And he proceeds to say, in that day, this remnant will no longer lean on he who struck him, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. So he's saying here that they'll no longer depend on, lean on Assyria for whatever method that they think that they need to achieve their purposes. They will, in fact, lean on the Lord. Now, this idea of leaning on is, is pretty much a display of total and complete trust, a complete dependence on one who they know is firm and sound in their foundation. They thought this of Assyria. They thought that this was a key to them being safe, to them being protected and comforted. But what they had in fact done is leaned on a person and or a country who has afflicted them, who has oppressed them, who strikes them. And this remnant that he speaks of will no longer lean on worthless things, on enemies. They will lean on the Lord. It kind of reminds you of the scripture that may be some people's favorite scripture in Proverbs where in chapter 3 it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Don't lean on your own understanding as we so often do, but trust in the Lord. That's the other side of it. Trust in in him, lean on him. And it says that they will. They will trust in the Lord. They will lean on him in truth, which kind of harkens us to the New Testament in John chapter 4, verse 23, where it specifically says that the, these worshipers, these people who will put their trust in God, will worship him in spirit and in truth. Meaning that it won't just be this obligation because they've seen God perform all of these acts of, of brilliance and things like that, but it will actually be an accessible understanding that what God declares is true, that he is true, and that they are abiding in truth and worship him in spirit and in that truth. It's not just because they're going to run from some sort of punishment, but they understand that what is being told displayed, and given to them is true. Next we see here in verse 21, this remnant will return. Now, we have to kind of rewind a little bit and go back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3, and understand that Isaiah is prophesying this very same thing, this remnant will return, and he is so convinced and so assured that this will happen that he actually names one of his sons this remnant will return. He gives his son the name, the remnant will return because he is assured of what God is doing and what God has said will happen. 
And he says that this remnant will return to the mighty God, which is an allusion to Christ in Isaiah 9, 6, where he's actually called the mighty God. He shall be called wonderful, mighty God. They will return to the mighty God. Next we see in verses 22 and 23, Israel's destruction is overflowing with righteousness. Now that kind of that phrase kind of may give us pause. Destruction overflowing with righteousness. Lends us to this idea that this just God is declaring the full end of his decree to his glory. To not just sit down and camp out in this idea that things will be destroyed and, and everybody's going to suffer, but to camp out in the idea that God who sees the end from the beginning is decreeing the end from the beginning to his glory. That he's bringing all things into fruition, that, that this is going to be overflowing, this destruction is overflowing with his righteousness because of this remnant, this promised people that will be his and that will declare his name as true and high and lifted up. Israel may be destroyed and Judah attacked, but God will always preserve the remnant of faithful believers who trust in him and not in military alliances. Those who trust in Assyria will come under Assyria's power. It seems like that's already unfolded and they've aligned themselves with their enemy. In the end, it will cause their nation to be taken into captivity. But the remnant will return and rebuild the nation. God will make a full and just end to his decree. Now, what we see here also is the fact that Jerusalem, or referred to as Zion here in the scripture, that Jerusalem will, they will be under attack. They're going to be under, under siege. The Assyrian king is going to come to the crown of Israel, which is the city of Jerusalem. They're going to attack Jerusalem. And this is a fearful thing for the, for the, for the people of Israel right now, like to even think or con conceptualize the fact that Assyria is coming for Jerusalem. That's fearful thinking. God gives them assurance, encouragement that Jerusalem will be prote protected by God himself. He will protect Jerusalem. He will protect Zion. The Lord will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian, and he also, he also references Egypt. So Midian is a reference to Gideon. Unintentional rhyme there, but that happened. Midian is, an, is, is reflecting upon Gideon, where Gideon and just a few soldiers overtook a massive army with just 300 men, calling out that Gideon has won this battle for the Lord. And all of these people attacked themselves and killed themselves, hundreds of thousands of people on the battlefield, lost in that moment because God had given Gideon the victory. Man, I can't even say that too many times. And then he think about Egypt and all the things that had happened with Egypt. Now, look, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes when I read the Old Testament, I can get a little annoyed or irritated with the people of Israel because they've got these stories and these actual events that happened where the walls came tumbling down 
The sea was parted, the pillar of fire. They've seen these things that God has done, and yet they find themselves in this state. But God is reflecting upon all of these great acts to once again give them assurances, give them confidence that he is for them, and that this enemy will be the object of his fury. And finally here, in verse 27, I wanted to spend just a moment just to recollect on this idea that you may see in the Old Testament, and even in Isaiah a few different times, of the yoke, this yoke. So I asked the guys to put a picture of it up because I'm a visual person. When I'm, you know, as a citizen in the United States of America in 2016, I'm thinking of some eggs, you know, and, 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 and it's just like, God help me, like, you know, this was written a long time ago, and, and I just want to understand. So basically, this, this is the yoke that's being referred to here that was harnessed to a coupling of animals in a lot of cases. And basically, what these animals were doing is they were dragging something very heavy. They're carrying something, and it, it, it's like, man, this is tough on these animals. I don't know if they could... They could really do some of the things that they used to do back in the day and make these animals carry some of those things today, because that's cruel. But they were just laboring and carrying something extremely heavy. And what God is saying here is this is you. This is you carrying this burden. This is you enslaved to this burden. I'm going to break that yoke. I'm going to set you free from that bondage. This is God comforting his people. This remnant will experience God breaking the yoke, releasing them from this captivity, setting them free. And as we proceed, we get to see what God is actually going to do to fulfill that promise. So in the next few verses, 28 through 32, we've got this dramatic foretelling of the Assyrian king's approach to Jerusalem. The siege on Jerusalem is at hand. He's moving through cities. People are crying out in fear. They're calling out to other people to warn. They're sitting in Jerusalem. What's going to happen? And then we see in verses 33 through 34, the terrifying, unadulterated, unrelenting power of God, which will absolutely destroy and devastate this army. Humble this king. If you want to use context, you can use the book of 2 Kings chapter 19 to see actually how the angel of the Lord executes this and protects the city of Jerusalem when it looked like there was no way they were going to be able to stop this army, this king. The Assyrian army is compared to the forests of Lebanon because of the multitude of trees in it, high trees, lofty trees, big extravagant branches. And what's being said is it's going to be cut down, the branches cut off. What is high and lofty will be brought low. See, if you see in in 2 Kings 19, this Assyrian king had gotten pretty bold. He thought that all the power and all the wisdom and all of the influence that he had amassed was on his own terms, with his own wisdom, with his own might. 
But as we discovered a few chapters earlier, he was just a sovereign tool of God in the midst of all of that to bring glory to his name, to rise up this remnant, which would ultimately glorify God in all the earth. So this high, tall cedar tree, this forest of Lebanon had to be chopped down low. And boy, was it chopped. 185,000 people were killed by the angel of the Lord. And Jerusalem was protected. Now I've got three implications here that I want us to see that can help us put this together, understand this text in light of God's grace. Preservation, power, and promise. We here at Veritas Community Church love the letter P. We are powerfully pathetic, even though we rely on preservation, power, and promise. I declare that to you from this pulpit. (laughs) (laughs) Preservation, the remnant. By his grace, God preserves this remnant for himself. The response to the prophet's message was not met with open arms in Israel because they felt like they didn't need it. Remember this entitlement complex that we tried to explore earlier on? Israel feels like they have already achieved this privilege. They are, they're in a place of invincibility almost in their own minds, kind of distancing themselves from God, that their heredity has already determined the fact that they're favored. And this pride has blinded them. However, what we're seeing here is God articulating who this remnant is, what their characteristics are, what this makeup of the remnant represents. And it's a people that, with the same energy, the same utter and total rejection of God that is on display, the same same just complete and total disregard for God's laws and God's instruction that this people displayed will be flipped upside down and will actually play out as a complete and total rejection and disregarding of this fallen world. And this people will turn to God and find their strength. They will turn to God and find truth. Their identity will be in him and they will reject the things of this world. It's just like the old hymn says, the, string, the, the, the things of this world, they grow strangely dim. Very dim. It's just like, oh, this, this isn't everything that I need it to be. There is a light and illumination in Christ that is my pursuit. This is the makeup of this remnant. This people will be dedicated to God in heart and in spirit and in mind and devotion and worship, all of the above. They will reject this wicked world and turn to Christ. Their affections will be set on things that are above, as Paul articulates in Colossians 1. The God of heaven and earth will be their delight and their very identity will be in him. This is the people of God that we all find fellowship and community in right now. 
This is Christ's church. This is us. And, and I don't know, some of you may be thinking, well, you know, I don't always reject the world or I, I, I don't even know what the concept of the world is. I find myself falling into sin often. But let me under, help you understand something. This isn't about you and your ability and what you have accomplished. This is about God decreeing and bringing it to an end, winning you by his grace and establishing you in his promises and saying that that's enough. You're his. You are his. You have been one to Christ. And your makeup has been predetermined by his grace. The saints of God in Christ that are transformed by the power of Christ are the very fulfillment of these words. The power or the fatness. All right. Talk about the fatness. There's power in the fatness. I hope you are still with me. So you read verse 27 and you, you kind of, you may get riled up and say, yes, in that day, the burden will depart from your shoulder, the yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. And that's kind of like, what? It's not how I expected that to end. Well, the fatness or the fat is a reference to the anointing. It's a, re- it's a reference to the anointing oil that ultimately references the power of God, him giving grace to accomplish his purpose on earth. This is not something that is just a trivial type of ritual that was done throughout the Old Testament or just language that you can kind of pass off because what it's really doing is it's pointing to Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord Lord has anointed me to preach to the captives. That's the first thing Jesus said when he stood up in the synagogue. That's actually from the book of Isaiah. Being anointed by God. Jesus was referred to as the anointed one who has been given the power to break yokes, the burdens, the captivity, the slavery that people experienced. This was being broken by the anointing. The fact that God had anointed a servant, given him the power to execute his will, his purposes on earth. This is what this is referring to. Jesus expressly in scripture is being referred to as being anointed, With the oil of gladness in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. The one who loved righteousness and hated iniquity. He's the one who destroys sin and and death's bondage in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1. So you see the fact that this anointing, this power, this strength that has been given from God is placed on Jesus. He accomplishes all of this on the cross and displays his glory, his power for all to see. People are completely set free. And that leads us to the promise, freedom. The yoke that enslaves us to sin, death, 
and Satan is broken. The anointing destroys the yoke that hangs on us. It is broken. We are set free. Imagine if the oxen had to pull this burden and then the yoke that was on them was broken. They'd scatter. They'd run at top speed. We are not bound to any of this anymore. Our sin can no longer hold us. Our sin can no longer bind us. And Satan can no longer dance around us and make us look silly because God has won the victory. God has fought for us. God has broken the yoke and we are free. I was reading the commentaries and and one particular person, just the way he articulated just Man, it just messed me up, man. I was just in worship like, man, this is great. This is awesome. And this is what he said. He said, the prophet, referring to verse 27, said, the prophet in this last passage rises in his ideas. And having expressed the temporal deliverance of the church in the preceding clauses, here seals up the period with a consolatory clause admonishing the pious of their deliverance from a spiritual yoke. That is, from all the power of sin and Satan and their vindication into the full and perfect liberty of the sons of God through Jesus Christ, the king of his church, who, for his purpose, would communicate an abundance of the anointing spirit of wisdom, knowledge, prayer, liberty, and adoption. This isn't some cheap grace, an abundance of liberty, adoption, prayer, worship. This is incredible. For freedom, we are set free. What an amazing, amazing conclusion we can come to. And what we read here is a testament to God's might in displaying his grace. It's hard to sometimes to couple might with grace, but what we see here is a mighty victory won for us. In the song we just sang, Christ who died, raised to life, has made a way for me. He's actually made a way when there was no way to be seen or made. The miracle of grace is that it actually pierces a pathway in the midst of all of our despair and says, this is the way you can walk to to find life. If you are sitting in a place where you don't understand how you're going to get out a a place of danger or, or just complete unassuredness or just confusion or whatever you're struggling with, understand that grace has made a way to Jesus. It's made a way. He fights for us to his glory. His purposes will be accomplished for his glory. His redemption is final, a full and just end. There's no condemnation. This has come to an end. It's closed. It's finished. This redemption is final. His grace is for all. The fact that he spreads his hands out to a rebellious people, as we'll soon read, is a testament to infinite faithfulness. He wins us with an excessively gaudy grace, one that once considered, it could cause us to become ashamed. 
or it could be something that we incredulous, incredulously downplay. We say, ah, that's too much for me to even comprehend. But he beckons us to come boldly to this throne of grace. He's extended it to us. And the only proper response is to God be the glory. We read Ephesians chapter 1, and it talks about to the praise of his glorious grace. And it talks about the riches of his grace being lavished upon us. This is the grace extended to us. It perseveres. It's powerful. And it set us all free. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much. You've given us such a great gift. We can't repay you. We can't live up fully to your perfection, but we don't have to. We have a perfect high priest. We have an advocate who's won it all for us. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that you have set us aside and protected us, given us all things in life and godliness, given us spiritual wisdom Help us, God, to continue to rely on that no matter what limits we come to in our own minds and our own strength. Help us always to land at your feet and know that the throne is there for us to come boldly to access mercy. Help us to accept it. Help us to trust you with all that we are and know that you're enough. Your grace is sufficient. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.